future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, 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 welcome, welcome. It is Monday, November 14th, 2022, and has it been one hell of a week? <laughs> welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kev Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. And Out to Coop Live, of course, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can check out our once or twice monthly The Wednesday Show with Cyril Michaleko. Cyril, of course, is the editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon, and he joins me to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're there. Just go. Go. And rate us while you're there. Hit those five-star reviews, tell your friends. That's how we make sure the show gets out and other people can find the show. And you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress and become a patron today. And you can help out the show by checking out our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. For more PA Progressive Talk, you can tune to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern, wherever you get your streams. And for information about all his shows, all the broadcasts, head on over to thericksmithshow.com for the latest across all the platforms. And if you haven't already, you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And you know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. For all you gamers out there, The Game In, that's with two N's, The Game In is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show. They've got everything from retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And look, with kids back in school, they do well on their report card, they get a discount. Come on, you can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at TheGamein. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message and drop them an email at TheGameInPA at gmail.com. And a special shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at SongAdayMan, two N's, at SongAdayMan on Twitter. And for those folks who have uh, sick and tired of the school board wars, don't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, today we've got one heck of a show for you this week. Yes, tonight I welcome Sean Crampsey to the show. Sean is the Director of Government Relations for ABSCUF, the Association of Pennsylvania State College and University Faculties. 
That's my union, baby. Um, ABSCUF represents the faculty and coaches of the Pennsylvania State System of Higher Education. And we'll be taking a look at the results of last week's midterm elections and unpack what it means for PA and public higher education in the Commonwealth. Sean has been the Director of Government Relations for ABSCUF since 2017, where he advocates for the faculty, coaches, and students of Pennsylvania state-owned universities. Sean lobbies for state funding for public higher education, tuition affordability, and protection of workers' rights. Prior to joining ABSCUF, Sean spent four years with the PA School Boards Association working on K-12 education issues. All right, guys, no joke, folks. And Sean is also serving his second term as councilman for the borough of Carlisle because he has got nothing else to do with his free time, apparently. During his time on council, Sean has advocated for his community community and helped pass an anti-discrimination ordinance, approve affordable housing, and help pass a rental inspection ordinance. Sean received his bachelor's degree in political science from Bloomsburg University and lives in Carlisle, PA, with his wife, Brittany, and his little kid, Carter. You can follow Sean uh, on Twitter at at Sean Cramsey, that's S-E-A-N, C-R-A-M-P-S-I-E, just like it says in the show up there. Um, and you can also follow ABSCUF Gover- Government Relations at ABSCUF GR. That's ABSCUF GR on Twitter. Um, and, you know, while you're at it, hit up our union at, at ABSCUF. That's at ABSCUF on Twitter. Sean, welcome to the show. Hey, Kevin. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad I can can finally get on. Oh, man, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. And like, you know, I guess I, I couldn't ask for a better week, I guess, <laughs> because it's like, what the, <laughs> you know, it's been it's been one heck of a week, I have to say. Yes, this uh, this week has been a month, it feels like. One hundred percent. Well, listen, before we get into um, some of the stuff on the elections here, um, you know, can you talk a little about tell a little about folks about what you do for ABSCUF, kind of what your kind of job entails and what you pay attention to when looking at kind of state politics and what's happening in the PA state legislature? Yeah, so so I'm lucky and and fortunate enough to be the um, director of government relations at ABSCUF. That's the fancy title for lobbyist. Um, <laughs> and, and what I do in my role as lobbyist is I get to represent you uh, and our other amazing faculty members and coaches. Um, I, I tell people, you know, it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, my life has come full circle. I get to represent the people that taught me um, with Bloomsburg being one of right. our 14 um, universities. So, you know, day to day, I get to be um, up at the Pennsylvania Capitol um, on, on faculty and coaches behalf, uh, working on issues um, to make our, our state system and our schools stronger. Um, so whether it be funding, whether it be workers rights, um, and then those issues, you know, whatever we work on, at ABSCUF um, has a direct benefit for our students, right? So when we talk about free and affordable college and scholarships and and protecting our our faculty members, those all have direct impacts on the amazing students um, that go to our universities. So that's that's on the on the lobbying side and the policy side, and we can get I think more into that at the end when we talk about what the future looks like. Uh, and then on the political side, we we have a political action committee um, at ABSCUF. We endorse candidates. Um, and we, we try to fight to make sure that we get um, pro-union, pro-public higher education um, folks elected to the legislature. Thankfully, um, last week we had a pretty good run um, of the folks that, that we support uh, being elected. So we're excited to see uh, many of them get sworn in in, in January. Fantastic. Well, so I, I think it's a fair it's fair to say at this point that uh, what happened on Tuesday was a bit of a surprise to virtually everybody. I mean, was that a fair assessment? Uh, yeah, I think that's very fair. And <laughs> anyone who says they weren't surprised, uh, 
may, you know, maybe some in, in the House Democratic Caucus weren't surprised. But outside of that, um, I, I think anyone that says they weren't surprised might be lying to you. Yeah, I think or just wanted to kind of make sure they get a extra some extra follows on Twitter or something like right, that. Right. right. <laughs> so so let me let's just take folks back a few days, right? Um, kind of uh, use our little way back machine here and kind of talk about, say, the lead up to the midterms. Um, because I want to kind of put in context, the, the, you know, the kind of how momentous Tuesday was in some ways. So can you give us a sense of like leading in, going into the midterms, right? You're sitting there in Harrisburg, you're kind of plugged into this, you're endorsing, endorsing candidates, you know, doing the lobbying thing. I have a sense of, you know, what's happening, you know, what's happening with the election, what likely outcomes might be. Um, what were their expectations going into the election? How were you seeing it at that point? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a great question. I think it, it's important for folks to realize because we've we've kind of gotten a little far away from it. But this this year's election in the House and the Senate and and for Congress, they were all new districts, right? So we're hitting um, this ten year period uh, of new districts after the census. There was the the Legislative Reapportionment Commission um, that put out these maps, right? Uh, and those maps were upheld. Um, by the PA Supreme Court, so they became, you know, the maps that that folks are running on. So I think leading into that, um, if, if you look at, uh, we'll look at each chamber, right? So if you look at the House, um, I think everyone was was in agreement there would there would be Democratic pickups, um, just because of where these new districts right. were drawn, um, population shifts. It seemed um, pretty obvious that there would, uh, based on performance, and then based on some races that didn't even have opponents, um, the Dems would pick up a few seats. Um, on the Republican side in the House, I think they were looking at some some high-performing Trump districts where they could potentially um, do some flips as well um, to mm-hmm. blunt some of those new districts um, potentially going to Democrats. Um, on the Senate side, it was kind of a longer game because those um, those seats are staggered. So 25 were up this year, 25 will be up in 2024. So if you're a Senate Democrat, I think they saw the opportunity to protect the seats that they had, uh, and then for uh, a pickup or two or three this year, uh, and then looking to 2024, um, a pickup of, of from their side, potentially two to three. Um, and then on the Republican side, right, they had, they had I think, two or three targets this year, uh, and the same will come up in 2024. Um, so so the, the playing field was new. Mm-hmm. Um, based up, ba- leading up to the election, you know, I had my numbers. Um, I thought the House Dems would get to around 97 or 98. Um, I thought the Senate Dems uh, would get to around 22 uh, and have the Senate Republicans uh, at 28. So on the Senate side, I that happened. Uh, that's mm-hmm. what we saw on the on the House side. I think we, we saw a different story that, as you mentioned, most folks um, did not expect to see. I, th- I think the issues, obviously, <laughs> leading leading up to the election um, made a major impact. I, I was looking back, you know, if you think to 2014, um, when we had the governor's race and Governor um, Wolf uh, knocked out Governor Tom Corbett, uh, I think all polling and anyone you talked to, education was kind of the top issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was interesting for us being a, being a union and then also uh, working in higher ed. That issue, you know, in all the polling, it just wasn't cracking the top five. It was it was yeah. the economy. It was abortion. It was crime. Um, so that's kind of the issues that led to what we saw. The other thing where, where I think, you know, you may have seen a surprise in the House uh, in running some numbers leading up to the election that the Dems had to flip 12 seats. Um, there were 12, I think, on their map that were in play where the performance was uh, and performance, not registration, uh, was at or above 50 percent um, of those 12 seats. Uh, they won eight. 
they lost two, and then there's two um, that are still too close to call. But where we saw, I think, the, the moves get made for them to get to the number they're, they're sitting at today, um, there were seven seats that I'll call uh, new ish, right? Mm-hmm. So we saw with the redistricting, uh, these areas get new seats. Uh, the House Democrats won seven and zero in those seats, and That's then amazing. yep, and then they uh, they had a hold in the Northeast, a vacant seat that was held by a Democrat. They were that their party was actually able to hold um, onto. So that that kind of gets them to that number they're at today. So just so everybody knows, so basically we need a hundred a hundred and two, right? Is the number to get majority in the House. Correct. So there's, right. there's uh, 203 members. Um, so 102 is the is the majority number. Right. Excellent. So, I mean, that's I mean, great. I mean, that's a, a great setup for kind of where we were going in. And I think that I mean, and your number you said was like 90, 98, 99 is kind of like that's where it could be like on a decent day. Right. On a bad day, it's going to be lower than that. But where it seemed things seemed looked at at that point. Um, so then Election Day comes and um there is I'm sure that as the, you know, as time goes on and we're going to be able to do more analysis of actually who turned out, where they turned out, um, um, was this new registration? Was it primary kind of abortion that pushed things? Was it, you know, wh- where how did that all stuff break down? And I, my guess is that uh, I went did a little back and forth with some folks on Twitter on this um, not too long ago about like, you know, I don't think Pennsylvania is going to be like uh, a, a one story kind of uh, story about what happened during the elections. I mean, I think when you look at Bucks County, Montgomery County, um, kind of like in the ring districts around uh, around Philadelphia, you look at some of those kind of new districts that you're pointing out. I think we're going to see different issues, you know, kind of pull, pushing and pulling in different directions. I mean, I don't know if you think that's that's an accurate assessment or I'm curious how you look at it. Yeah, yeah, it, it it was interesting to see kind of the the top tier issues and their breakdown, and then what I think some folks tried to push. So I'll, I guess I'll start with that. You know, we had we had a gubernatorial candidate, Doug Mastriano, um, who I think both sides of the aisle will agree ran one of the more curious campaigns ever potentially uh, for governor of Pennsylvania. But you look at some of the issues he really leaned into. Um, book bans. He, he was talking about, you know, stripper polls in middle schools. And it's just, it, it's pretty clear based on the results, none of that landed because it wasn't based in what people were feeling back home, right? When when he was going out there with some of that more outlandish stuff, I think people were looking around saying, well, wait a second, like that's you, Democrat, Republican, independent, I think could look and say, you know, I know the teachers at my local school, I know the community, like that's not happening, right? Like right. that's just not based in reality. And I think from his campaign, he was trying to pull from some of the national things, what what he saw in Virginia, what he saw in Florida, and it just didn't didn't play here in Pennsylvania. So there was there was some exit polling done, and I think this is super interesting. So the top issue based on this exit poll, I think CNN and there were a few others that did it. Thirty six percent of folks across Pennsylvania said abortion was their top issue, um, which makes sense, right? After the Dobbs totally. decision, I think I think organizers, I think everyone got motivated behind that issue. And those folks did a did an amazing job, right? Putting that issue at the forefront and really drawing the differences. Um, within that 36%, um, 78% of those broke to the Democrats, 21% broke to the Republicans. So that really was kind of, I think, the issue that, that tipped the scale on a lot of these races. Um, 
Interesting. The, the the second issue that was that was number two uh, at twenty nine percent was inflation. Um, so there was kind of that national narrative of is inflation going to tank uh, President yep. Biden and his party. Um, that issue broke seventy two percent Republican, twenty six percent Democrat. So inflation was not as high of a priority. And then those numbers broke even just a little less, I think made, made the difference, right? Um, what's the, And then the third issue, which really stuck out to me, and I think bucked the trend of what we were hearing, um, crime was at 11%. When you break that down, um, of those 11%, 51% voted for Fetterman, 55% voted for Shapiro. So there was kind of that, you saw all the attack ads, right? Of, yes. of you know, Shapiro and, and Fetterman are soft on crime. It, it turned out based on this poll and the electorate actually trusted them more to deal with the issues than than Dr. Oz and Doug Mastriano. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. So w- one of the other things, too, that you notice. So I mean, you've already talked a little about Mastriano and Shapiro, right? Shapiro won. What was it by? Was it 14 point? Or was it 10? I mean, am I getting it to about 14? Uh, 13 or 14. I think last I checked, yeah, it was right around 14. So say right around, we'll say right around the 14 percentage points here. Now, that was not the margin that Fetterman won by, though, which suggests that um, you you probably had some, my guess, you tell me, that some Republicans were to say, okay, this Mastriano guy, they didn't just say not vote, (laughs) but they actually may have crossed over and actually supported Shapiro. And there were some efforts in order to get Republicans, say, you know, Republicans for Shapiro and so on. There was especially kind of in my area, kind of in the Philadelphia kind of like exurbs or whatever. Um, there was a lot of that kind of push to see some Republicans cross over. So, um, I mean, can we attribute that difference between, uh, say, the, the Shapiro win and then Fetterman was what, like four points? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, how do you see that breakdown of those differences? Yep. So, uh, it, so it's a mix. I, I, I will say on the front end, you know, Josh Shapiro. I think when we look, when history looks back, will be one of the strongest candidates Pennsylvania has ever seen. So he is on a run. Um, in 2016, he actually um, broke the record for most votes ever in Pennsylvania. In 2016, he got more votes than Donald Trump in Pennsylvania. So in a year where mm-hmm. Donald Trump took PA, Josh Shapiro for attorney general had over 3 million votes. He follows that up uh in in 2020 with actually outperforming president biden um so president biden wins the state so again you have two years where presidential candidates get fewer votes than an attorney general candidate so i think that goes to show you know the type of campaigner and the type of appeal josh shapiro has he follows that up um again being top vote getter in this state again this year when you have a hotly contested u.s senate race so i think you know that's credit to his campaign where he um, I think expanded the electorate. It wasn't just Democrats coming out and it wasn't just folks coming out to vote against Mascherano. Um, I think you had, that didn't hurt. Um, right, but sure. I, th- I think you, I think you had independents and Republicans looking at, looking at his style, looking at his platform. And he's, he's a great campaigner, right? He, he toured the state. He didn't, uh, skip over areas. He was for our universities. You know, he was at Clarion. He was he's at East Strasburg. He was at Bloomsburg. I mean, those places matter. Uh, and I think sometimes they feel ignored. Um, so I think that, that was kind of the credit to his success. Now on the flip side, I, I will say John Fetterman did the same thing. He didn't ignore. Yep any part of Pennsylvania. And I think when you look at, uh, and I saw, you know, I don't want to take credit for this take because I think the Fetterman campaign actually put this out there. Uh, it was something like over $500 million in negative ads against Fetterman. Um, Josh Shapiro didn't have that, 
right? So when Fetterman that's wins by point. four points, that's a that's a huge achievement. I mean, he I think anyone you talk to in some of the polling, they thought it was a toss up one point one way or the other. Um, that's a pretty resounding victory for him. So I think you also could have had, you know, um, some Trump supporters going for Fetterman. Um, now, I don't think that canceled out that margin. I think Shapiro got that higher margin because of the type of campaign money he had because of the opponent he had. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't read into that split as, you know, oh, this candidate's better, right? They both had kind right. of their own unique um, campaign and credit to both of them. It worked um, for what they did there. And I, I think, you know, I'm hopeful that folks on social media are giving their flowers to the campaign staffs because they uh, they did a heck of a job on both teams. They really deserve a lot of credit as well as the candidates. 100 percent. And I think, you know, again, we're never going to know the answer to this question. But, you know, if, if Fetterman hadn't had a stroke, um, you know, I think how that might have affected, you know, his, you know, his numbers there, too, as well. Because I got the sense that, you know, I could see like reasonable people having a concern, right? Um, whether or not it's a justified concern, whether or not it's ableist, all that kind of stuff. But nonetheless, I could see people having that, that kind of concern. And the fact is, is that he pushed through it. And I think that, you know, the messaging coming out of it, too, as well is like, look, you know, and it was like Consistent with his campaign, you get knocked down, you get back up again, right? You know, you got the whole Chumbawamba thing going on. Yep. For him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think I think he did a good job relaying it to Pennsylvanians pretty much, you know, talk to anyone. They know someone, the teacher, a family member, a relative. I uh, in the le weeks leading up to our election, I got to go out to some campuses and talk to our retirees. Um, and I never asked them their political party, but I had quite a few come up to me and say, you know, I had a stroke recently, right? And I think I think it really backfired in the Oz campaign. Um, you know, some of his staff and some folks um, trying to take shots. I think it was totally. I mean, it was in bad taste, but also um, it just doesn't work, right? Because I, I think Fetterman, everyone could see, even with the debate, there was a person who suffered this stroke and then came back out and you know didn't back away, uh, was up for the challenge and and showed up. Yep, one hundred percent. So that I mean, there's a great say top of our ticket here um, too as well. And I think that you know I've got uh, Brian kind of chiming in, basically say, "Hey, <laughs> um, how you feel about Fetterman, y'all? Your new senator, <laughs> right? Basically, uh, Brian out in Ohio. Yep. Uh, so, okay, so you got to uh, do the same out there in Ohio, no, Brian? You got to make sure you get get those folks over. Um, but yeah, so uh, amazing. Now. Let's get down into where we are, in particular with the state house. We broke down the numbers and stuff. Um, I have to say um, that you know I'm in I'm in Bucks County, right? I'm in the 143rd, and I am literally heartbroken that Gwen Stoltz lost her race in here, um, and uh, in part because uh, her you might remember him, James Rosansky was her uh, campaign manager who worked with uh, Pennsylvania State System students, right? Um, yeah. And uh, they ran the most impressive campaign I have ever seen here. I mean, they were knocking on doors over the summer. They had showed up at my house three times, like before we hit election season proper, and worked their absolute butts off. And I have, I have, there's, I, you know, I'm com completely convinced. Like, okay, yeah, she didn't win this, but I also look at my borough. I look at my borough. She won our borough, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, in ways that that would not happen elsewhere. And those margins matter. Right. When it comes to even at the statewide election. So we saw a similar pattern, you know, kind of in uh, 2020 when you had basically, you know, people showing up um, and, and really mobilized candidates who ultimately lost. Right. But nonetheless, brought voters out to the table and how important that was. And then to see it in Bucks County, to see six out of the 10 races like 
basically go to Democrats was was incredible. So can you give us a sense of like that lay of the land and the kind of the state houses and then we could talk, we could drill into the, the outstanding races that we're that we're seeing now? Yeah, so so currently, and, and we'll we'll talk about the out, out, outstanding races. But with redistricting, you know, that I think there were opportunities. But I, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, across the board, there were candidates across the state um, who either party may have lost on Tuesday. You know, who were out there um, knocking on doors and kind of building that movement, right? So so there's a lot of candidates, if you talk to them after their race, that that may have lost. Um, when I was going through the election results on, on Tuesday night into Wednesday morning, um, you know, you saw House races were 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 1,000 votes. Um, that's that's close, right? Uh, and what that does is it sets, it, I think it sets those districts up for two years from now, right? So if you're, if you're part of the Republican campaign committee or the Democratic campaign committee, you're going to look at those results and say, okay, 2024 is a presidential. What you know? What kind of money is going to come into this race? What kind of candidates? So I think that's credit, you know, to the folks that find candidates. There's a lot of groups out there that do recruitment and do a great job that find folks to run in every seat because I don't think you yep. can take you know any seat for granted um, across Pennsylvania. So I think we saw cases like you said where there were there were some tight races that went one way or the other, um, and then with the new districts in play. Um, that opened up the map for Pennsylvania or, or for the for the House Democrats. So what you saw were gains um, uh, in Allegheny County and then the southeast, uh, actually in Dolphin County out my way. There yep. were there were two Democratic pickups, um, and then the Lehigh Valley um, also also got a new seat, and Berks Berks County got a new seat. So you had that, and then on the Republican map, um, you know they were able to chip away a, a Western PA Dem, and they were able to flip a NEPA seat. But then you had the Dems hold that NEPA seat, which now is looking like it might be one of the more important holds um, when you look at what what the number currently is. Yeah, pretty. I mean, just pretty amazing. It's just pretty amazing. One of the things I also have to say is like we might be seeing some of the, you know, some of the backlash from um, the, you know, the real kind of right wing, more kind of extreme and and approaches to what was happening in the school boards. Because um, one of the things I could say, uh, again, this is Bucks and Montco down this way. Um, and I know this is in other places across the state, too, just speaking for, you know, folks that are in my backyard, is that once these school boards started kind of enacting these like really off the wall policies in our schools, with from the book banning to the anti-trans stuff and everything like this, parents organized and stayed engaged. And they didn't, it wasn't just say, okay, we lost that school board election. Now here, now we're going to go away. They've been building and getting stronger. Um, and I have to say from Bucks County, and I know this has been true, and I'm not asking you to go here with me, but I know this has been the true um, kind of in Bucks County and some other places where um, we've had a, a, a Democratic Party apparatus, apparatus at the county level um, that has not been invested in building infrastructure over the long haul, right? Um, so we have these candidates that are kind of like fly-in candidates right before the election, tons of money gets kind of comes in and then they go away. What we're seeing now, at least what I'm seeing here in kind of at Bucks County and Montgomery County, is that these parents, these community members have been staying engaged, got mobilized and woke kind of like, you know, woken up, right? <laughs> but what's happening to the school boards? And now those are some of the same people that end up staffing these campaigns and volunteering to go door to door. So that's really, I think, positive, you know, just, just, just I mean, kind of in more broad terms, positive in terms of like democracy, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? People engaged in their community at the local level, um, but also suggests kind of a pathway forward, um, even as we move forward to 20, uh, 2024, about like who's going to be doing the organizing and where that energy is coming from. 
Exactly. And it's kind of, and there's, there's different, um, different issues that, that relate that, right? So when I, when I've been talking to people about even, even the Senate and and the governor's race, like, yeah, we can talk about the candidates a lot, but what gets lost in some of that is the issues, right? So you mentioned those super local school issues. We also saw, if I take a step back and look nationally, um, you know, gun, gun issues. Yes. Uh, there, there's the the new congressman elect out of Florida, um, who I think might be the youngest uh, person heading to Florida, who Natural that was their issue, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, so you have that issue, you have climate change, and then you have abortion. I mean, those are three issues that I think um, folks are really mobilize, mobilizing around and will, will continue, right? So uh, I, I think you're right on the school board side. And then kind of broader, there's kind of these buckets of issues that are, are, are causing movements. Um, and you're right, I don't think that hurts democracy, because I think there was a, a group of people and I'm going to say it's young people, right, who 100%. have seen things yep. happen and say, hey, it's time for a change. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to hit a bunch of our campuses. Kutztown was one of them um, doing nonpartisan voter reg drives. Saw you there um, at the yep. table doing the voter <laughs> reg. Uh, yeah. And it's <laughs> and it's amazing to hear from students. No, I already voted by mail. I'm good. Right. Uh, and that's I think I think we saw that trend in Pennsylvania with the youth vote being um, being so large. And I think it was students saying, hey, I, I want to get active. Right. I, I want to be a part of this. That's a really good point. I mean, I, I didn't really that process that until you just said it. But, uh, you know, I've been doing voter registration uh, as kind of part of ABSCUF teams uh, on campuses for years now. And this is the first time that we go in there and like the vast majority of students who came up to the tables that we talked to that they were already registered, had either um, had a plan to vote or had already sent in their ballot. And it was like, whoa, that that's just a little I mean, again, it's it's a very anecdotal, very local kind of thing. But nonetheless, that stuff matters. Yeah, great. All right. So this is kind of going to be really interesting going forward. One of the one of the other things, too, we didn't talk about this and we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but we maybe we can fold this into kind of things going forward. But I was also thinking about there's some really damaging legislation that was kind of put into the uh, into, say, like the bloodstream, uh, legislative bloodstream here, in particular, these kind of constitutional amendments and so on like this, which we're going to, you know, make abortion illegal, a whole bunch of other stuff, um, gut regulations and everything like this. And it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that stuff, if if this flips Democrat Right. That stuff is gone. Right. Because it has to be reintroduced again. And secondly, if it's a really close one seat split. Right. That makes it that much more difficult for the for to proceed with really kind of like like far right ideological policy moves. Right. I mean, is that your sense of of going forward? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, and, and we might get into this in a minute. One, one of the most important things about being in the majority of either chamber is you control the calendar. Right. So you, you, you get to say what bills come up or don't come up. So when you talk about those constitutional amendments that that got passed uh, in, in the dead of night <laughs> um, over the summer in, in hearing rooms without without video cameras, um, which we could probably do a whole podcast on on how that how that I was process thinking the same happened. Thing, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I think we have one outstanding race, maybe two. Um, I, I don't, I can't guarantee anything. I can't speak for any caucus, but the thought is if the Dems were to take the house, um, that those constitutional amendments would not be brought up. Even if the Republicans hold the house, uh, it's important to remember there were a few Republicans that voted against those, um, in, in July. So, uh, some of the more moderates, if you hold their votes, there, there's a chance that these could go away, which I think, um, taking a step back and looking at those issues, that's a good thing, right? Those were uh, not good constitutional amendments. I know there's some that might say, 
well, hey, bring it on. Look at there were five states on Tuesday that said we want to expand abortion access and not limit it. Uh, it, it it's a risk that I don't think anyone should want to take. You don't want to play with people's lives uh, right. in the electorate and you don't want to put that up, even though, you know, there's a confidence that the voters of Pennsylvania would strongly reject that. Um, but it's still if, if it doesn't come up for a vote, that's that's a good thing. So um, I think that is in limbo. Um, and, and I think maybe the folks that were pushing that, maybe they see the national trend and realize it was a bad idea. I don't I don't know. I can't speak for them. But but I, I, I think you're you're spot on that with the majority getting as and minority parties getting as close together as they are. There's there's a chance that this might not come up uh, again in 2023. Yeah, it'd be kind of ironic if we had a, a Pennsylvania a state legislature where you had a Republican Joe Manchin, right, who could basically play kingmaker with any legislation that move forward, right? Right. I mean, it's, it's a very similar kind of scenario, even if it's even if it ends up being that close with Republican control. Yep. Yeah. So let's let's I want to shift in, in terms of talking about this is great. I mean, I appreciate this so much because I mean, I think so much has happened. Um, and I think that we're going to be teasing this out for quite some time. I, I do want to kind of close out with our section. We'll talk a little bit about um, public higher education in the state. Right. In particular, I mean, this is kind of, you know, this is your ballywick. This is your lane um, moving in here. And look, I mean, uh, Pashi, the state system of higher education, um, the university that I work at. Um, I think it's fair to say um, the the past couple of years, few years have been some of the most disruptive um, and, you know, like upsetting the apple cart <laughs> than I have ever seen or heard about. I and mean, we have a consolidation of six universities into two. Right. Um, and I don't even know if we now do we say we're still a 14 state university system or now where are we. You know what I'm saying? It's like right. even at this level. And we've we've heard, you know, the budget crisis stuff that's happening for years and years and how do we move forward. There seems to be an appetite for, you know, some folks on the Republican side have long been wanting to just like sell off campuses and kind of, uh, you know, privatize the whole system and all this. It seems to me that given that we're the makeup where we're at, where we're at right now, we might be seeing some changes. Right. Or at the very least, you um, the game has changed a little bit, the or at least the game board has changed a little bit um, in terms of what public education, both K through 12, but specifically in higher ed looks like. So from your lens, from where you're sitting, you're looking kind of going forward. And again, we don't know the the where we are finally. We're still, you know, waiting. We're not going to do Friday until all the provisional ballots are counted, what we're looking at. And then we have a special election coming up, yada, yada, yada. Um, what do you see looking forward um, for public higher ed in the state. Yep. Yeah. So I, I'll take a quick step back because I didn't I didn't land on this too much, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of give the caveat. I'll, I'll talk about the higher ed issues that we're facing. Um, I'll say regardless of the House majority right now, um, depending on what you think about uh, the open Bucks County seat, let's just say for, for argument's sake, it's 101 to 101. It's going to come down to the House 151st to see who um, who's in the majority. So if, if we take it from that lens, um, it, it, it could go two ways and, and the work would be a different approach. But if you get it that close, if you have a Democratic majority, there, there are bills that have sat uh, in the chamber that have been sponsored by those folks who potentially could be in the majority. Um, so the two big ones I, I like to bring up are the ABSCUF uh, supported and endorsed Pennsylvania Promise. Um, it's something we ran 100%. a campaign a around uh, a few years ago. We're super excited about it. We never 
uh, stopped the campaign, right? The work is always being done. What that would do is make public higher education in Pennsylvania as free and affordable as possible. We include the state related and we include our friends at the community colleges because we want to work together uh, to promote all of public higher education. There's We actually have uh, a quick plug, papromise.org, a website up. If anyone wants to find more information, it's really, um, I think, one of the most progressive proposals in the country. Um, so that, in theory, is on the table. Um, it took a back seat over the past two years to Governor Wolf's Nellie Bly proposal, which is also a great idea, um, giving uh, a little over $200 million. That's just direct to PASHI students um, in scholarships, um, could wipe out tuition for for uh, thousands of students in our state system. Um, so those type of ideas and, and campaigns are things that we're um, excited about and we want to talk more about. I will say, even if the Dems don't take the House majority, we're still if it's 102-101, we're still going to push uh, and try to get some moderate folks to join us. I will say the Nellie Bly Scholarship Program also uh, this year had a had a Republican co-sponsor. So it was bipartisan support. Um, in the past, the PA promise has also had bipartisan support. So we think, you know, there's an opportunity and a need as quickly as possible, right, to start moving those things because we each year we don't do something like that. I think our students are feeling that burden yep. uh, and we're seeing it in the student debt um, data. What would also be interesting if we were able to move one of those out of a committee and through a chamber, um, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not guaranteeing they would pass in 2023 or they would pass exactly how we wanted them. Um, but if they got to the Senate, then there's kind of that pressure point of, hey, we have some momentum here. Let's 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 see where we can agree. Um, let's get everyone together, both parties and see, you know, let's really support public higher education through scholarships, through affordability, whatever we can do. Um, and then we're kind of more in the game than we have been. Right. So I, I think the opportunities are there um, for those two issues now. The other thing that's going to be important to keep in mind is with the new administration coming in, the Shapiro administration, we really want to get a feel for what their vision is for PASHI, right? Um, so we, we kind of have a fresh look at it. Um, I think they're going to outline their agenda and what they see um, the state system doing. The other the other super important piece of a new administration is um, they get to appoint Board of Governors members. Um, so yeah. the PASHI Board of Governors, for those who don't know, is a pretty powerful board. Um, they're actually the ones that vote it on the consolidation. It wasn't the legislature had the enabling act, um, but that came down to a board of governors vote. So they're the folks that are making the decisions for the system as a whole. Um, I, I can't imagine what those appointees would have looked like if it was a Governor Mastriano. Oh my um, God. So, so we're, we're, we're happy to see, you know, <laughs> I'm just going to hang up my, hang up my hat right now and walk away. Cause I'm like, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so th those are kind of, you know, we have, we have the funding, we have the scholarships, we have the free college conversation. We have the new administration who's going to be, you know, appointing hopefully pro, um, Pashi folks to a board of governors. Um, we're going to, and we have been talking about at ABSCA student debt issues. So we, um, we have a piece of legislation now by a House Democrat um, that would create a student borrower bill of rights that we're really excited about. Um, any opportunity to get that moved would be great. And then we're also currently working on, and Kevin, I, I don't know if this would help you, but um, some <laughs> student debt relief for faculty. Um, you know, we, we went out to our membership and talked to them and, and their uh, student debt burden is still pretty high. Um, so figuring out how we recruit new faculty members, but also give them the benefit of, hey, the state is going to set up a program to help you. Um, and then the last piece, because I think I'm, I'm probably going too long. Um, no, but you're this good, is, man. This is a super important one that's flying under the radar a bit. Um, the state system actually filed a waiver 
with the PA um, State Board of Education to start a quote-unquote pilot program to give bachelor's degrees um, for less than 120 credit hours. Um, obviously very concerning for us, right? There's uh, on the surface, you might be able to say, well, that's great. If you can finish in three years, awesome. Um, we have very, very real concerns about diminishing the value of a public higher education degree. Um, no other schools in our Commonwealth are doing that. Um, it's hard to find schools nationally that are moving to a model saying, hey, just get 90 credits. We'll, we'll cut out some of the liberal arts. We'll give you a degree and you're on your way. Um, it would wreak havoc. Um, within higher ed. So that's something where these new legislators and this new administration, we really want to get a feel for where they're at on that issue. I will say the state system pulled uh, their waiver last week, uh, so it did not get considered at the board. It, it, it got pulled. Um, but things like that, uh, we need to stay on top of um, because as folks, you know, I'll use quotes, as folks try to innovate, we need to be careful that it's not at the detriment of our students and, and the education that they get. Because uh, you know, we hear far too often in this state, our faculty get beat up uh, and, and our universities get beat up as quote unquote failing. I, I, I challenge anyone to show up to our campuses because those those students on our campus are still working their butts off um, and tell them that that degree, degree is failing them. Right. Like they I'm a product of this system. I will always stand up and fight um, for the good things that our system does, even in the worst circumstances. And we faced the worst, I think, the past few years. Yeah, and I'll tell you the worst thing that I have to say, and I see, I hear this from students every single day, practically these times. Is anything is it jeopardizing their education? It's this constant drumbeat of austerity and kind of quote unquote innovation. So I'll tell you, at Kutztown, the biggest, you know, I went through and made a list of there were God, I think we were, I was up to thirteen or fourteen students who were trying to get into this one class, but they just couldn't possibly because the cuts have been so deep. They're not replacing faculty members, and so students can't get the classes that they they need to graduate. That's a disservice to the students, yep. right? Um, and so, I mean, just I mean, just to editorialize on that one because you know that is so important. But to go back to what you were talking about, these pieces of legislation and how important it is to have. I mean, if it was democratic control of the state house or even a very what we're going to end up with, even if what we, the worst case scenario at this point is a very, you know, narrow margin of majority or a Republican control. And there are some of these Republicans who have worked with, you know, um, public higher education in the past. Um, so they may be kind of a moderating force in some things. The most important thing to me is that these pieces of legislation no longer our ideas, right? They're proposals that are actually going to get talked about. That drives media coverage. And so we can actually have real conversations about it. Because I think for the average person in Pennsylvania, if they hear something like the PA promise, like, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. But when it becomes a material possibility, right, where people are talking about it, where they can actually go to their legislators and say, wait, this, I hear there's this bill that's on the floor and I want to talk to you about it. The whole dynamic changes. And even if it was not, like you said, even if it's not something that could be passed, say, in this next session, if you're building there, right, toward a much more stable long-term environment. So that's the point number one. The point number two is what you talked talk about with innovation. I think there's these two that I would love to see further discussion around one putting pressure upon what we mean by innovation, right? Because, you know, I mean, the Silicon Valley model of innovation is like, you know, 
like break shit and see where it ends up. And then we go from there. Right. It's like you try all this stuff and you just break things. And then with a piece of like you put it back together. It's like, you know, the SpaceX version of higher education where you just crash enough rockets and explode. <laughs> like, except here we're talking about people's lives. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, people's lives and education and futures. So that's the one. So what do we mean by innovation? Innovation for what end? And then the second one is that, you know, the, the whole idea about growth, that we can just grow ourselves out of everything. You know, there was an article in the, in the Chronicle of Higher Education just came out a couple days ago saying, oh, Pennsylvania has too many campuses, right? And the, the thrust of that, I swear to God, if I didn't know better, I think this this article was planted by somebody who wants to see the further consolidation. That's That was like, as soon as I read it, right? That's what it sounded like to me. But the point is, is like, there's other ways of imagining higher education, right? Is it too many campuses? Or you know what? Maybe we shouldn't kind of be thinking about higher education just having massive amounts of students crammed into lecture halls, right? We have a bunch of other models, which is what the state system had been, right? Been to relatively recently where you're talking about kind of smaller classrooms, direct access to faculty, which shows you better retention, especially with first-generation college kids and a whole bunch of other things. So we can have a different kind of conversation other than just growth and innovation. End of diatribe. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you're exactly right. I, I think to that point, sometimes people, and that's that's part of my job, you know, working with folks in Harrisburg to say, you know, what pick one of our universities. That university wasn't built for twenty thousand students, and that's okay, exactly. right? That's right. It, you know, if, if, and so I think sometimes folks get so hung up in enrollment that they ignore the, you know, this university was made for two thousand or three thousand students, and those students are getting a world-class education by great folks, and we should celebrate that, not say, why are the numbers so low, right? And I, I, I saw the article in the Chronicle as well, and I kind of, I thought the same thing. Why shouldn't there be space in Pennsylvania for everyone, right? Like, I I, I grew up uh, exactly. around a bunch of world-class universities. Now I get to work uh, with the faculty at a bunch of other great universities. Like, there there's something for everyone who wants it. And I, and again, that's not a bad thing. So, you know, I call it kind of the hunger games. And I think that article bled yeah. into it, the hunger games of higher ed, where everyone thinks it's a competition and it, it, it shouldn't be. Uh, and I, I will say the one, the, one of the great things I love about ABSCUF is we work really well with a bunch of other universities because we're all in it for the same reason, right? It's not, we kind of say, you know, the, the funding through Harrisburg shouldn't be pie. It shouldn't be how much can I get and, and forget everybody else. It should be, you know, what are we doing to help our Commonwealth and help our students and our families? And I think everybody plays a role in that. So yeah, when I saw articles like that, it, it does get frustrating around that framing. Yeah, 100%. Well, uh, Sean, man, I appreciate you so much uh, taking the time out tonight, uh, you know, and kind of like, uh, you know, getting the kid to bed before and all this stuff. Um, I'm so glad we're able to do this. But is there anything that you'd kind of uh, want to leave folks with um, before, uh, for obviously, people should go out, check out abscuff.org. Um, make sure you follow you on Twitter at, at Sean Crampsey um, and kind of all the amazing work you do. But is there anything that you think people should be paying attention to or that you want to leave them with or uh, for this way going forward? Yeah, I guess I guess if I could end with one plug, and we, we touched on it a little bit, but you know whether it's the PA Promise or the Nellie Bly program, I, I think next year we'll see something dealing with free, affordable, and scholarships. Um, you know, if you're engaged with this podcast or, or, or you you know you love what Kevin does because we all do, um, if you could get engaged around that, because you, you mentioned building the campaign, and we have been doing that 
through different methods. But I think you're right. Once it becomes more real to people and we can, you know, get one on one now that we're kind of getting back out into communities and back out on campus, we can explain the benefits. Uh, and once we explain the benefits of making college more affordable for our students, it's hard to argue against. Um, totally. You know, our, our students, if they can graduate with little to no student debt, um, they're getting jobs in the Commonwealth, they're they're starting families, they're they're shopping downtown, right? It's all kind of this cycle of it benefits everyone to have uh, to have less student debt. And I know the feds are, are doing their thing, but I think we can also do uh, a lot more in our state on the front end to make it more affordable. And then on the back end to make sure our, our, our graduates aren't, aren't crushed by student debt. So well, stay engaged. Yeah, stay engaged. And I'll tell you, you just uh, basically gave the promo for the next time that I'm going to bug you to get on the show as soon as we get some of these things coming out so we can start pushing out uh, this campaign and, uh, you know, maybe even bring some students on too as well who are who've been working on this issue. I'd love to have I mean, because I know like students are engaged everywhere. Um, they know firsthand uh, kind of the, you know, that uh, the anchor of student debt that they're going to have to carry and what it would mean for their lives going forward uh, if we could pass this stuff. Well, Sean, I appreciate all the work you do, man, and I uh, appreciate you coming out tonight. And, uh, man, you know, we'll see where this uh, crazy election uh, winds up. But, uh, man, it's a, it's a it seems like a new day in PA. Yep. Thanks so much. All right. You got it. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in tonight. Uh, thank you all for the new watchers and the new viewers for tonight. I really appreciate it. I want to remind you that you can support this podcast by heading over to patreon.com slash RC press today. Um, you become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Uh, we'll be with you again for the Friday politics roundup. And then we're going to take a little time off for Thanksgiving. So uh, get re-energized, ready for the fight. See ya. I'm